have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. I want to insulate uh, my crawl space. What's your opinion on putting plastic uh, uh, on the dirt floor? Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor, and now Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Uh, first statement I would make about crawl spaces under modern-day construction, you're going to put plastic down if you want to get an inspection. It's actually There's a section in the building code that requires that today. So I strongly encourage it, even before it was in the building code. This is something that I have always done. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Each weekend at this time, Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, is right here answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. I'm Jim Britton. Thanks for joining us again this weekend. Don't forget, if you have a question for Ken, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And also... Uh, you can uh, friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you'd like to email a question to us, forward it to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Several shows back, we talked a little bit about maintenance on your home heating and cooling system, and we discussed briefly heating and cooling filters. And I promised you I'd be back in another show to talk about them in more detail. And that's where we're going to head for the next few minutes today. Because so many of you come to me and say, you know, what is the right type? I dealt with that just here in the last week or two. What's the right type air conditioning filter for me to have? And most of us are price point oriented. So if we can go buy a package of three for $5, we're going to throw those in there and say, we got a filter in. That's great. You know, really the basic air conditioning filters that are in the market are the panel filters. And that's because they tend to be a square or rectangular and they're a flat panel. What they are doing, though, is largely protecting your air conditioning equipment. They're preventing the largest dust particles from clogging up the ductwork, from getting on the coils, from getting on the fan itself, and the moving parts within your system. And that's great. It's designed to do that, and manufacturers understand you need that level of protection. But what these panel filters that are typically the cheap throwaway filters don't do, they don't enhance the air quality. They simply protect the equipment, which is the basic function. And so many folks today have allergy issues or they just want to eliminate some of the additional dust, if you will, within the house and reduce some of that interior maintenance. And these other filters that you start looking at and say, well, I can't imagine myself paying $9 for a filter or I can't imagine paying $100 for this washable plastic-looking filter here. There really is some science behind those. And many of you, when I get through with this, will say maybe it's worth a consideration. In my professional opinion, it is. I use the higher-end filters because they serve a very good purpose. As I said to begin with, the panel filters typically are the cheapest throwaway filters, and they're only protecting the equipment. They're not enhancing the air quality. Let's step up from that. And many of you have heard the term electrostatic filter. Now, that is a washable filter. It's not one that you tend to throw away. It's going to have some type of a plastic filter media usually in that. But the electrostatic filters use static electricity to remove particles from the air. And they work along the lines just as you move across that car seat in the wintertime. Many times you touch something metal when you get out. There's this huge bolt of electricity that comes out your fingertips or your hands. That's static electricity. The electrostatic filters work along the same principle. That They have multiple layers in them, and generally in the first two or three layers, as air and particles move across those, uh, the, the, the membrane, they are charged, and as they go onto the backside, 
because they're dealing with both a positive and negative charge, they are collected in that system. So there's no electricity. The fact that it says electrostatic, this is all natural. This is just air movement, like you sliding across that car seat or that piece of furniture and getting zapped when you touch something metal. The principle is the same. And again, these are typically reusable and washable filters, but they cost a fair amount of money. Now, they do a good job because they pull much more dust out of the air, and they will help keep the house a bit cleaner, and you're also saving money in the long run because you're not buying $5 throwaway filters every time you turn around. Now, there's another type of filter that will be similar in terms of efficiency of pulling added dust out of the air, uh, pet dander, some of those type things, and that's a pleated filter. And that's because you actually have more filter media for the same area. So if you've got a return air filter that's 16 inches by 16 inches, instead of having that square inch area, this pleated filter may have double that because it uses sort of a zigzag shape within it. And I think most of you have probably seen those. They also tend to be throwaway filters, so you're paying eight, nine, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty dollars or more every time you need to replace it. And if you're in an environment where you have a lot of dust and dirt, you may be replacing these every thirty to ninety days and other less dirty environments maybe as much as six months. So that can be pretty pricey after a while. But these pleated filters, again, gain their efficiency because of the increased surface area. So they are worth the added money, in this, at least in my opinion, because they do a better job of filtering the air. But what they're not doing, they still are not enhancing your air quality if you happen to be an individual or have those in your house that have issues with allergies or uh, you're subject to problems sneezing, if you will, from pet dander or hair or smoke or things along those lines. And we're going to get to that quickly in just a moment. There's one other type that's not so common these days. Some of you may have them, these washable filters. They were great on the market many years ago, the foam washable filters, I should say. They're not really highly recommended, especially for the main whole house systems these days. Uh, I would suggest you look at some of the others. Uh, they're used today most commonly for window air conditioning units. I want to take you to the next step, though, and that's the HEPA filter, H-E-P-A, because that's a name a lot of us recognize. We're seeing vacuum cleaners and other products, air purifiers, sold with HEPA filters. And that's because they do a much better job. They'll pull 99.97% of dust, mold, and other allergens and so forth out of the air. And that's great because that gives us the kind of interior home environment that we're going to experience in places such as hospitals and food manufacturing facilities and many office complexes today where we have very pure air that takes a lot of the, allerg- uh, uh, the, the things out of the air that create real problems for those of us with allergies. So I want you to think a little bit about these types of filters. The HEPA filters are going to set you back quite a few dollars, but think about what they do. And not everybody needs a HEPA filter. Not everybody needs any more than just a basic $3 install yourself and throw away filter every few months to keep the AC unit clean. But if you happen to be in that environment and you're sensitive, you want to consider moving up, spend some money on these washable one-time filters, and do yourself a favor. Now, if you really want to spend a few dollars and you want probably one of the best systems I know of in the marketplace, and there are several manufacturers producing comparable systems, I'm going to talk about one I have personal experience with, and that's produced by Train. It's called the Train Clean Effects Air Cleaner. This removes 99.98% of allergens from the air. This will remove even smoke, in most cases smoke, bacteria, which is something a lot of these other filters don't do, and so many other items, cooking grease, uh, lint, fungus, mildew, dust mites from the air. It is extremely fine, and this is a three-stage filter that goes in a whole house system. I can tell you I've used these. I've installed these in commercial and residential structures, have them in my own home. Extremely pleased with this. 
So there are so many filtration levels when you start to think about it that when you walk into a big box or hardware store, it just blows your mind. You're saying, what do I need? I just came in for a filter. Well, folks, think about how you live in the house and what you're trying to do with your air quality, and then you'll make an informed decision. And one little hint, if you're going out looking for filters, make sure you know what size filter you need. Uh, isn't that a great starting point? Because when you start looking at it, it's, it's like, I just wanted a can of beans, and there are 45 cans of yeah. beans on the grocery store shelf. I just want a filter. Yeah. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor, we'll bring you our App of the Week. It's the DYI guide for every type of screw, bolt, and nut. That should take care of a lot of things. That'll help all of us out. And also, on our Universal Living segment, we're going to talk about fire safety for the hearing impaired. That's all coming up this hour on this edition of Ken the Contractor. This is Ken the Contractor, along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt. We welcome you to join us each week at this time. Ken's here to answer the questions that are important to today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975, or you can email us questions and forward your emails to KenTheContractor.com. Our next email comes to us out of Pennsylvania, and Ken wants some advice on a propane furnace versus a pellet stove. Yeah, this really is not too uncommon. As we discussed on other shows, people are looking for alternative heating sources. And Shannon from Allentown says, I'm considering replacing my old furnace with a propane one or possibly buying a pellet stove. Are pellet stoves cheaper to run than propane furnaces? going to give you some simple facts here, Shannon. And this is easy for all of you that are thinking about something similar uh, in terms of doing the homework and First, you want to look at your fuel cost. The real way to evaluate these is the cost to produce a million BTUs. Now, BTU is a British thermal unit, and that's how heating and cooling happens to be measured. So in this case, you would look at the pellet stove and you would look at the oil or the propane furnace on a per million BTU produced cost. And if you are buying, and I'm using a high number for most locations, the pellet cost of $225 per ton, and no, you don't buy it by the ton, but that's how it's typically rated on bulk before it ends up in a bag form. But if you're paying $225 a ton, most pellet stoves, and again, the efficiency will change, but I'm going to use an 87% efficient pellet stove, will cost $15.66 per million BTUs. So that tells you per million BTU, exactly what that cost is in energy, in pellets. Now, that doesn't take into consideration the cost of the stove, but it does take into consideration the fuel cost. Now, measuring just the fuel cost of a propane-fired furnace, and I'm going to take a price of $2.75 a gallon. Some of you are saying, I wish I were paying just that, and others are saying, boy, that sounds tremendous uh, you know, to me. Um, anyway, forget about the, the price of where you are. I need to give you a comparison. I'm using $2.75 a gallon. And that means you will need roughly 11 gallons of propane to produce a million BTUs because each gallon produces about 92,000 BTUs per gallon. I'm getting too far in the math, but what I want to make here is a point that if at $2.75 a gallon, it's costing you $30.25 to produce a million BTUs with LP and $15.66 to produce a million BTUs using a pellet stove. So the answer to your question, that even as those vary some, both the efficiency of the equipment and the cost of the fuel source, that pellet stoves so far win the race when it comes to energy cost, energy producing cost, 
over LP. I hope that helps you. Our number, 800-614-2975. That's the number Lauren dialed. Lauren joins us right now. Hi, Lauren. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Thanks. How can we help you? have an electric water heater which went off on the safety reset. And I've only dealt with a few of them in the past. I know that the upper or lower control should be a little bit higher than one than the other. I don't remember which one, and I don't really remember why that is. <laughs> okay. Well, first, if I follow you correctly, and for others listening, when you say it went off on a safety reset, it actually tripped the thermal switch. It got too hot. Is that correct? Right. Okay. And was it the top or bottom element or both? Well, there's only one reset on there, and that's okay. on the top one. Okay, because some, I've seen units, I've installed some that have one at each location. You have one for the entire unit. Only one. Okay, yeah. now did the did the hot water heater actually uh, uh, have water coming through the pop-off valve? Did it get that hot? No. Okay, so all it did was shut down the power. The It, it tripped it, essentially, as a, and that's a safety right. feature. Actually, I came on a few hours later, so there could have been some water, I guess, but it's not... Not a sign of any uh, water at the end of the pipe there from the pop-off. Okay. Well, I will tell you, typically, as, as a contractor, when we install new water heaters, new construction, retrofit, it doesn't matter, both top and bottom are set the same. Uh, that's how these were. Okay. We don't set one higher than the other, and I've had people say they want to do that. If I were going to do that, I'd be setting the bottom a little higher rather than the top because all the heat rises in that unit, and, of course, the colder water is filled from the drop tube. It goes in through the bottom. So if I were doing that, I would be setting that in that fashion. But what you may have is simply a bad safety switch on that. I have seen those go bad where the element is okay. It's simply the safety switch. Not unlike the breaker in your electrical panel, they can go bad over time. They can become weak, and it won't take much to trip them. Now, if this is the only time this has happened, you might reset it and try it again. may even want to turn the temperature down a little bit, maybe three, four, five degrees on each element, and see if it performs okay. You could, it, it could be becoming so sensitive that as the temperature reaches the max, it's tripping a little too soon. Could that be a bad element starting to go bad? It is possible, but usually, again, this is in my experience, when an element goes bad, it just goes bad. It's either working or it's not working. That's what I thought. You yeah, know. yeah, so more often than not, I've seen the, the safety mechanism, the, in this case the circuit breaker switch or the pop-off, just actually go bad. Uh, I'd say it's a little bit like a car thermostat. And if you've ever experienced this, you know you can detect occasionally a car thermostat on the engine might get stuck on some older engines. Occasionally it'll work fine. Sometimes it doesn't. And it would be like that. But if an element goes bad to me, they just quit. There's never an in-between. Yeah. Okay. Well, I thank you very much. We appreciate your call. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate your call. The number to dial if you'd like to join us is 800-614-2975. Let's deal with a quick email here, Ken, because we are getting colder weather for just about our entire listening audience. And Charles has a problem with a garage door opener. And this is not the time of year you want to be having a problem with your garage door opener, is it? No, you want to be sure and keep that down as much as you can. That's one reason you have a garage is you want to keep that uh, inside temperature a little more comfortable than the outside. And he says, my garage door opener is on its last leg, I think. It was installed about 12 years ago. It still opens and closes the door, but the door comes down a bit, about 10 inches after it's open. 
said, I'd like to, uh, see what goes on here, let me paraphrase. He said he'd like to note that it does sag or droop, and that's what he's talking about when he says it comes down about 10 inches. He said, I don't see any broken lines or springs. Everything looks okay to me. Should I replace it, or is there a simple problem that can be fixed? Well, Charles, a 12-year-old garage door is not that old to me. These units, and I, I do this occasionally, talk about how long things should last in garage door openers. Uh, you ought to get a few more years out of this. What I would suggest to you is that you go to your owner's manual if you have it. If not, look up that operator online and look under troubleshooting. What you will find with a unit that's 12 years old is there's probably a clutch mechanism on the inside or a gear, and most of these are vinyl or plastic. I wish I could tell you they're steel, but most of them are not. That has worn to the point that when that door is in the retracted or the up position and you have all that weight, even though it's counterbalanced by spring to some extent, that it wants to sag or drop down just a little bit. Maybe a simple clutch adjustment or a component that you can replace yourself because the garage door openers are not that complex. And I've done this and I've had relatives and other friends and, and folks do this. So I would encourage you to take a good look at that before you go out and plop down another two fifty, three, four hundred dollars for another garage door opener. You know, for thirty five, forty bucks, you may find the part that you need and fix it yourself and say, look what I've done. I think you ought to be getting another three to five years out of that. And it sounds to me like you just have some parts to replace. Thirty five bucks sounds a whole lot better than four hundred bucks. It does to me. And many times we're in a throwaway society. We'll get rid of some, something rather than investigate and it would be a fraction of the cost to make the repair. And for those of you that are inclined to do this, I really encourage you to pay some attention to it. And you're saying, I don't have the manual. You can look it up. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. If you have a question for Ken, give us a call, 800-614-2975, or email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor, along with Ken Patterson. I'm Jim Britton, and Ken's here every weekend to help you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowner. You can always reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Let's go to the phones right now. Let's head to Dover, Delaware, and Sean joins us right now. Sean, hi. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hi, Ken. How are you? Hi there. How can I help you today? Uh, well, I've got a question about uh, gutters and gutter systems. Um I uh, purchased a house earlier this year, and uh, after all the recent rains, and I, I live in Delaware, so we had the hurricane rains come through, I realized that the previous owners, I don't think, ever cleaned out their gutters. Um, so I'm looking at getting gutter cleanings, and I had a couple quotes from some local and uh, and nationwide companies, and I was wondering, uh, is there a better way to do it myself without my wife worrying about me getting up on a ladder, or is there maybe a less expensive way, like, you know, a handyman, but do handymen actually have licenses and things like that? Well, you raise, and uh, can I get them to install a guard for me to keep the leaves out? Uh, you, you raise some good questions. A lot of people have issues with having home maintenance items done, saying this is too small for me to engage the services of a general contractor, but yet I don't know where to go to have all of the the individuals that I might call properly licensed and insured and bonded and the various things that they need. And a good source of that will always be uh, two or three of these areas I want to point out. One will be your local building department because they have license in various states. Yours would be the same for contractors that are certified to do basically remodeling, and that's what they specialize in, and others that are, are would be a Class A or a Class 1 contractor that might do high-rise buildings. That isn't who you need working around your house. It's just 
it's overkill. So I check with the local building department for some references. Also, you always find the, your local builders association and NAHB, the National Association of Home Builders, has member groups or affiliates in every state and in most every city across this country. So if you look up Home Builders Association, you will find contractors that are members in your community that specialize in certain items, whether it's remodeling or plumbing or air conditioning or building new homes. And then finally, one source that I use, even when I, I work away from home outside my common areas, is to use local supply houses and ask them for references of people that specialize in certain tasks that I want to have done on a project because they're going to do two things. One, they're going to recommend people that they think a lot of in terms of the, their honesty and their integrity, but two, they're also going to recommend people that pay their bills, which are important to you. So those are three Those are three good sources for almost everyone to always count on when you're looking to have that work done. Now, to go back to the other part of your question, are they licensed and insured? Yes, you should be certain that you're working with a person that holds a license, whatever your municipality or your state requires for the type of work, and it's probably for this type of work, uh, for miscellaneous maintenance, uh, it's, it may be classified as a C license or a three, something along those lines. But you want to be sure above all that they have insurance, that they have liability insurance, they have workers' comp insurance. Because if someone working for you under contract with you on your own property is injured while they're performing that task and they do not have workman's comp insurance in most states, not in all, but in most states around the nation, you and your homeowner's insurance can be liable for their injuries permanent disability, or death should that occur. You never want to find yourself in that situation. And you, no, don't want to just, you don't want to just have them, Sean, say we have insurance. You want a copy of a certificate of insurance, and you want to know that it's valid, that it hasn't expired. Okay. Um, I've got one more question about the gutters. Uh, I was looking uh, to see if I could buy the gutter guards myself and maybe hire the handyman to come over and put them in. And they mentioned something about a K-style or K-shaped gutter, and they've got 3-inch or 4-inch gutters. If I don't have a ladder that's tall enough to get up to the gutters, how do I know how wide or deep my gutters are by looking at them from the ground, and how do I know what shape or style they are? Well, I will tell you that if you can look at the gutter from the ground, and for those of you that are saying, I can hardly see it, I'm in a two- or three-story house, get a pair of low-powered binoculars, and you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. If the gutter appears to be seamless, meaning it was extruded with a machine, you don't see a joint every 10 feet, then you're typically dealing with a four-inch on most residential construction. Okay. And that's one thing for you to look at. Uh, the smaller gutters tend to come in segments and pieces where you, you've got either 10-foot pieces as a rule. So if it appears to be a seamless gutter where it's only connected on inside and outside corners and you've got a 12, 15, 18-foot piece with no joints in it, then it was yep. extruded, okay? That's and and uh, then uh, the size, the only thing I can suggest, or the, the profile, is you may want to take a picture of it from the ground and take that with you to your supply house. But... The, the most common gutters in the marketplace, you're going to find the hardware and big box stores will sell gutter guards for you, for a handyman, or someone else to deal with. You just have to look at the situation because some of these become very expensive per home. They get into the thousands of dollars where you've got hinges and you're flipping up components or elements to clean stuff out. My theory has always been that if it does what it's supposed to, I really don't need to clean the gutter again, which is why I put it on. Why do I need a hinge? And I know the ones on my own home, for the rest of you, and many of you have asked me this before, just that way. They are a fixed unit, and they work fine. And I've got a lot of trees and leaves that get in them, and they do a good job of deflecting them. 
So I never encourage anybody to spend more money than they need to, and a lot of people in the gutter business would disagree with me, but this is my experience. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's been very helpful. We appreciate your call. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. We've got lines opening. If you've got a question for Ken, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You know, we... We mentioned something on one of our, our local shows when we had a rather severe weather here, winter here, and I thought I had uh, come up with, uh, you know, the, the golden rainbow here for me that was going to allow me to retire, uh, which was uh, something that would heat those gutters and keep them from freezing. And, of course, Ken immediately shot that down and said, well, they've had those, particularly in the Northeast, for many years. Uh, but the gutter itself has really changed over the years, hasn't it? And I, I know there are even some places, and, and I think I remember you talking about this, as to whether or not we're going to continue to see gutters on houses. Well, we, we have the sort of uh, opposing opinions. There are parts of the country you <clears throat> you will find building departments that actually require that, and that helps you control the stormwater, and that's one reason why, not just the gutter but through the downspout system. And there are other areas saying we don't want to see them at all because of the damage we're having from snow and ice. It's not only pulling the gutter off, it's pulling the fascia, it's pulling the eave drip, it's getting back into the shingles, and we're seeing more damage. So there are opposing opinions in different parts of the nation. But what I encourage people to do, if you have a gutter, if you want a gutter, if you're not required to have one or not have one, is that you make sure that it's right for your climate conditions. If you're in a heavy snow environment, an ice situation, you want to be sure that it's installed, not with, I'll say, the basic cheap do-it-yourself devices, because the first heavy snow, it's on the ground. You want to be sure that it has proper structural support, just like the rest of your house. If you live in a southern environment where it's relatively warm, you're only dealing with water, those are fine. That's what they're designed for. But in all cases, if you've got trees, you got to maintain them because when they get just clogged with those leaves, they get so heavy, they're going to come off the wall. Yeah, and then the nightmare scenario is right on top of that, you either get some cold or freezing weather, and then you've got those big ice jams in those gutters, which, as, as you talked about in the past, can really create some structural problems. Well, it's one thing for us to say, well, if the gutter comes down, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal if it starts ripping holes in the fascia, if it's pulling the fascia, and that's the wood membrane that's attached to the end of your trusses. If it's yanking that off and tearing out your roof, and I have seen this happen, folks, now you're spending hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars for a, a repair when something could have been handled with just the right type of, of uh, fastening devices. Don't forget, you can follow Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. If you have a question, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or through the website, KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. A house is what you build, a home is what you make it. Each week, Ken is here answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner, answering your questions about your home inside or out. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or send your questions to our website. That's Ken the Contractor. Dot com. All right, Universal Living this week. Uh, we're going to talk about something uh, that uh, will be uh, something of impact for many of our listeners. Ken, you're going to detail a little bit fire safety for those who are hearing impaired. And this affects young and old alike. So this is, again, Universal Living, something that's right for absolutely everybody. And it doesn't have to be someone that can't hear. And that's one of the unique things I want to bring up about this when we talk about fire safety. Smoke detectors in our home are something we've all grown very accustomed to seeing. We anticipate having when we buy a new home. And I hope you're doing the right thing in keeping those maintained. 
but you recognize that not everybody can hear that audible alarm. And yes, there are many of us out there that simply are hearing impaired and have difficulty with that. And in that case, you want to be sure you've got a smoke detector that has a strobe light in place. Now, you may have noticed some of these in commercial applications for many years. They are available for our homes today as well. So if there's someone that is completely deaf to these sounds and unable to detect them in any fashion, you want to be certain that you have smoke detectors that have strobe lights so that they can visually see that has been that engaged, that there's smoke, they need to evacuate the facility. However, you may have someone within your family or household uh, that just cannot detect certain sounds. And I know others that do this, and that includes maybe the little beep on the oven when the timer goes off, the microwave. How about even the smoke detector? There are companies that produce one particular unique sounds, both different pitches. And you can go to some of these companies and determine if your relative can pick up a particular sound, higher or lower. One company I'll mention is called Loud and Low. And they actually offer three different sounds, one being a low C, a middle C, I think a high C. For those of you that are into music, completely different pitches than what you have on the traditional smoke detector. So I want you to keep in mind that there are different ways of hearing, even though not everyone can hear the same tone. And one other thing that I've mentioned to you, there are smoke detectors that talk to you today as well. It will tell you fire or detected smoke, escape the building now. They will do that in different pitches or different tones. So for any of you that are listening that have hearing impairment or for your household, think about the right type of smoke detector to keep you safe. Also, remember, they have a life expectancy cycle, and that's usually about 10 years. If you have smoke detectors older than 10 years, even if they seem to be working, you need to fork out a few dollars and replace them. Very good. All right, here's an issue. Uh, that is something for folks to think about, particularly this weekend, as they're out and about looking at their Christmas trees. But you're bringing up a, an interesting point, and, and that is, I always thought it was kind of a, a generational thing. And that is, you know, particularly while well, you got kids and you're younger and you can handle the rigmarole that goes with getting a fresh cut Christmas tree, you do that. As you get a little bit older, you know, the uh, the fascination and the fantasy starts to diminish a little, a little bit. bit. Yeah. yeah. So the artificial Christmas tree, which you swore you would never get. Absolutely. A couple of years ago now, that's fantastic. <laughs> it let's, looks great. Let's go ahead and do that. So there's that debate that you have out there. But also you bring another interesting one, and that is which type of Christmas tree, let's call it a fresh cut tree or an artificial tree, is safer for your home. Well, and both can be safe, both can be dangerous, and that's why we want to spend just a moment talking about this. First, if we're looking at fresh-cut trees, because as you said, Jim, we get caught up in the moment, especially if we've got kids and they're pulling and tugging at us and they're excited about the season and what have you, we just go grab a tree. You want to do an inspection on these trees. Not all of them are as fresh as they may appear to be. You want to be sure that you have a fresh tree that looks green, because if you've ever disposed of a real one uh, after the holidays, it may stay outside for two, three, four weeks and still look green. That doesn't mean it's fresh. You can't always go by the color, but that is a, a, certainly a sure sign. If it's brown, you definitely want to stay away from it. But fresh needles, if it's a fresh-cut tree, those needles are going to be very difficult to pull off that particular limb. And when you take a needle and you bend it in your finger, 
uh, put it in compression, it's going to bend like a spring. It's not going to snap. So if it snaps, that tree is dry and it is brittle. The same holds true with any of the smaller limbs on that. So that's just a quick check you can do when you walk to any of the supply houses that are out there. Also, when you look at the tree trunk, if it's been cut recently, you're going to find that it's very sticky. You're not going to have the tree sap that's dried and hard. So those are some quick checks for us to be sure we're buying a fresh tree that is green. And when you install that in your home, you want to be sure and keep plenty of water around the base of it. This is after you've cut off the bottom couple of inches. It will actually suck up that water. It will absorb that water as if it were still growing, and that keeps those needles from drying out and becoming the fire hazard they can be during the course of the few weeks that you have it in your home. Now, what about these artificial trees? I talked uh, on another show about some of the lights that are out there that now the fire marshals have warned me that many of these very economical lights that are made in China are only one-time-use lights. We're also seeing something similar on artificial trees, not so much one-time use, but trees that do not carry a UL rating in terms of being uh, uh, flame-proof or having flame-retardant materials on them. You want to be certain that you're buying an artificial tree that carries that type of label from Underwriters Laboratory or others certifying them as fire-safe. And then you also want to be certain that you're putting the right type of lights on those trees because a lot of us out there, my age and older, you got some of these big 60-watt lights you used to put on these trees. You remember those, Jim? As opposed to these little bitty uh, LED lights that are out there today that create no heat at all. So you put the right light on the right tree, and you stay safe as we move through the holidays. Well, you know, and some of those, uh, those older ones, that if you break them, I mean, it's remarkable uh, the the shards of glass that are produced and how thick those lights were years ago. But, you know, some of those you're still using, you've been using for 30 and 40 years. I know some folks who have many of those. I do tree. as well. Yeah, I do. And and it's not just the, the old lamps and you're talking about the glasses on them, but the safety hazard comes with the age. Where do most people store those? They're in an attic or they're in a basement. So they're neglected for 11.2 months out of the year. And the the wiring on that wears out, the insulation becomes frayed, and it can create an electrical short. So most fire marshals and others that deal with life safety code will tell you, even though we've got them, we need to get rid of them. At the very least, we need to inspect them thoroughly and be sure that insulation is still sound. Right, we just have time for our app of the week before we have to sign off this week. Now, this is one that everybody needs to know about. If you've ever wondered about nuts, bolts, and screws, you've always, you, you, you go out and buy some things you're assembling and the package of fasteners didn't come with it. And you've got a, a, an instruction that says, use fastener A. Well, it doesn't tell you what fastener A is, but it shows you a little picture of it. And what is that? Well, this particular app that's uh, put out to identify all these is called iScrew. It costs a dollar ninety-nine. It works with your iPhone, and it tells you everything you wanted to know in terms of screw types, whether it's used for wood, for particle board, for drywall, whether it's for steel. It doesn't make any difference. The same with the nuts or bolts. It gives you all of the different types, whether it's an Acme thread, a bicycle screw, uh, whether it's a buttress core screw. Things that you probably don't want to know, but when you need the right product, it shows you pictures, it shows you thread count, it shows you in a visual form the things you need to have in your hand to go to the hardware store and say, I need six of these. Help me. So I think you'll find it very uh, useful. You can go to my website for more details on that, kenthecontractor.com. Cost $1.99, called iScrew, made for the iPhone. Very good. And as Ken mentioned, if you want to check out some of the apps that Ken has recommended in previous weeks, just go to Ken the Contractor, and right there on the front page, you'll find where you can click and take a look at some of those many different 
uh, apps that we've highlighted here on the show. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. We thank you for joining us. And don't forget, if you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or through our website, KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.